Okay, so our scripture this morning is from Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Uh, last week we started with the Beatitudes, and we're going to continue this week. <laughs> All right, it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, last week, we started a series on Jesus' teaching, and I'm really excited for it. Uh, one of the main reasons that we're doing this is because, honestly, I wanted, I wanted to learn for myself, um, because it's only recently that it's begun to click for me. Last week, we started the Beatitudes with the first two, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn. We talked about how the Jews at this time felt like God wasn't really with them. And they were longing for the time when God returns to his people and gives to the Jews their own keen once again. They actually felt like they had already done this on their own, uh, a little very recently, actually. They had their own playbook for how to do that. About 150 years before this, a leader named Judah Maccabee led a revolt against the Gentile kingdom that ruled over them. And they were able to successfully build their own kingdom. And that kingdom lasted for about a century before Rome invaded. In their minds, all they had to do was bide their time, strictly follow the Torah, and wait until God raises up another Judah Maccabee. And then they will violently overthrow the Roman authorities. In fact, they thought that God had raised up a Judah Maccabee and revolted against Rome three times, once in 4 AD, once in 70 AD, and once in 132 AD. They, there were debates among the Jews at this time about how exactly this was going to work, which really involved, revolved around two questions. What kind of people really count as Jews, and what part of what Judah Maccabee did should we prioritize so that we can build our own kingdom? Jesus here is answering both of these questions. And you can tell because the thing that he says after, blessed are the X, is always some common Old Testament way of, of referring to Israel. For example, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Anybody would have said that the kingdom of heaven belonged to Israel. Or when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, he's referring to a prophecy in, by Isaiah that every good Jew knew at the end of the exile, that knew that at the end of the exile, Israel would be comforted. So you can see that he's answering the question, what kind of person is truly a part of God's people? by saying, the poor in spirit, the, those who mourn, the weak and the merciful. All of those things at the beginning of each at beatitude. But we also saw last week that nobody would have liked any of his answers. 
In fact, it seems like it's traditional in paintings of Jesus giving these sermons that nobody is paying any attention to them. On the bulletin, you see the disciples talking amongst themselves, looking this way and that, but they don't really look like they're listening to Jesus. And for good reason. Jesus is throwing out the whole Judah Maccabee playbook. He's not calling for a revolt to kick out the Romans. He's not asking for any of that exciting war stuff. Instead, last week we saw that in the first two Beatitudes, Jesus was calling the Jews to actually take a look at themselves because it was their own sin that got them in the mess they're living in. Just like us, they love to find enemies because it kept them from having to actually think about whether they were being the people that they were supposed to be. The Jews were mourning the situation they were facing, but not the sin that got them there. Instead of getting out the clubs and the swords and trying to force God to do something big, Jesus said that Israel was going to need to do some soul searching to make sure that they would be on the right side of things once God came in judgment. As we'll see, what Jesus says this week is going to make them even matter, if you can imagine. So the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Once again, if you ask Jesus' audience who will inherit the earth, they probably would have said Israel. And again, they wouldn't be wrong. But Jesus is telling them what kind of people are included in this Israel. What kind of qualities characterize God's people? Jesus here is telling them that God's people will be meek. The word for meekness here is also translated elsewhere as gentle. And I think that helps you understand a bit of what he's saying here. There are people who are constantly looking out for other people's good. They are committed to keeping the peace, even when it's uncomfortable. They aren't necessarily submissive. They'll let you know when you do something wrong. But their concern is never just with telling people off or speaking their mind, but always with restoring people and encouraging them to do good. They can control themselves, in other words. They're, they're not after some cathartic streaming, but they're actually after real justice, even when it doesn't make them feel good. They aren't tooting their own horns. They, they let their humble actions do the, do the talking. They don't hold grudges, and they're always ready to forgive. When they're in the wrong, they let people tell them it, and they actually consider whether they're right, without having any kind of wounded pride. Peter describes it like this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It's honestly a really calming way to look at life. All you have to do is what's right. Let the chips fall where they may. Anger is a really rare emotion for a meek person, since they don't have to deal with hurt pride. I'd love to be more meek. Just like we saw last week, the meek inheriting the earth is exactly what Israel should have been expecting. But actually, it's really not what they were expecting. In this beatitude, Jesus is just straight up quoting Psalm 37. It says, refrain from anger and restrain wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. 
In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is something that actually happened in Israel's story. When Babylon deported them into exile, they were primarily focused on decapitating the state. In other words, they most wanted to take away all the leaders and the elite, people like Daniel. And there were a fair few poor people and meek people who actually managed to stay in the land of Israel and more or less take possession of it. Everyone else was gone, so they inherited the earth. It's true, though. Israel really did want to inherit the earth. And they're hoping for God to come and give it to them. But their actions showed that what they actually expected was for practically everyone except for the meat to inherit the earth. It's really helpful to understand their perspective to recognize that the word inherit here doesn't just only just mean like when someone dies, you get something. It was also used to refer to simply taking possession of something. One of the most important ways the word was used was for when Israel under Joshua inherited the promised land by conquering it. In fact, the word that Jesus is using here is used exclusively in the Greek translations of the Old Testament to refer to inheriting by conquering. The Israelites really wanted to inherit the earth, and they think they're going to do it by forming a really big army, like Judah Maccabee on steroids, or like Alexander the Great, except better. In this context, the meek are exactly the opposite of what kind of people they think that are going to inherit the earth. Who has time to be gentle and humble and to care about others when it's time to show the Gentile nations who's boss? But Jesus has a different kind of kingdom in mind. In fact, it's just the kind of kingdom that Israel was always supposed to be. They were supposed to model the righteousness and love of God by being meek and gentle and reasonable. In doing that, they will bless the whole world and show them that the world doesn't just have to be a blind power grab. They can give themselves up in love for each other. Forsake their pride, serve the outsiders, and then everyone will see that this is just a better way to live life. In doing that, they totally disarm the power of scary armies like Rome, because then everyone will see their corruption and degeneracy for what it is, simply raw, selfish power. And instead, it offers a different kind of power in love and meekness. That way, it's actually the meek that inherit the earth, not the brash, brutish, prideful soldiers. Jesus is saying that the people in his kingdom will be those kind of meek people. It sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? Meekness and gentleness sounds like a nice, carefree, way, happy way to live life. So why is it so hard to put in practice? I think part of it is we're afraid of what will happen to us. If I'm not looking out for myself, then who will? We don't want bad things to happen to us, even if it happens because we were doing the right thing. If I don't get payback now, when will I get it? Forgiveness means suffering for something you haven't done, and that doesn't sound right, does it? Who will vindicate us? And that's where inheriting the earth comes in. We don't have to, be, have to worry about being persecuted for doing the right thing, because one day we'll be, we will be raised from the dead. And when that happens, the people that persecuted us won't be there. And they will mourn because they failed to recognize that the meek were the ones who had the power the whole time. And that means that just like when the head honchos of Israel went into exile and the meek inherited the land, we'll inherit the earth too. The fourth beatitude. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. As we saw last week, the first step to hungering and thirsting for righteousness is recognizing you don't already have it. We saw that many of the Jews were convinced that they were righteous enough for God's kingdom to come and for them to be in the group that's rewarded by God. It was easier to do this because they had enemies who they were able to compare themselves to. Oh, at least I'm, not the, I'm better than the Romans or the Parthians or all the other Jews. When you're angry about other people's unrighteousness, it's very hard to hunger and thirst for your own righteousness. You just don't have enough emotional bandwidth to actually give your own actions the attention they need. You never thirst for something you don't already have enough of. But it is very easy to convince yourself that you have enough righteousness for now, and you have no need for any more. A sane person will get thirsty in the desert after an hour or two, and will do anything they can to get some water. But a person in the late stages of a rabies infection will develop a symptom called hydrophobia, where the infected person will be irrationally afraid of water to the point that even the suggestion that they drink can cause incredibly painful spasms. The same can happen with righteousness. A clear-headed person hungers and thirsts for righteousness, knowing that it's what he needs most. That person recognizes that they need to clean up their act and draw closer to God, or they'll destroy themselves, as all people do without the presence of God. But it's incredibly easy to become irrationally afraid of righteousness, just like a person with rabies is irrationally afraid of water. You can say, I'm righteous enough for one person. Or, if I act righteously, it'll keep me from getting done what I need to get done. Or, just this one last time and then I'll shape up. Or, my enemy is just as bad as, as me, so I need to destroy him first. All of that thinking is just as rational as the fear of water. It keeps you from earnestly seeking what you desperately need. Jesus said, those who are quote-unquote well have no need of physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This shouldn't have been news to the Jews. Their prophets were constantly preaching about how Israel became complacent in their own righteousness, and that led them into the mess that they were currently in. But what was new was the promise that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness would be satisfied. In Deuteronomy, Moses tells Israel that they will have to be righteous and follow God's Torah, or they will be deported from the promised land. But he tells them straight out that they won't be righteous and they will be deported. There was hope that once the exile was over, maybe a renewed Israel would finally act righteously. But books like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi made clear that the Israelites were holding on to many of the same sins that their forefathers practiced for generations. It seemed like Israel was unsavable. But Jesus here says that if only you hunt, truly hunger and thirst for the righteousness you need, then God will give it to you. Jesus gives us his own power, which enabled him to live in his entire life without sin. And that power allows us to resist sin and be satisfied with his righteousness. But the righteousness here doesn't just mean personal righteousness, like your own ability to do what's right. Although that is the first and most important step. It also refers to the righteousness and justice of your society. A person who faces unjust rulers and rigged courts and unchecked criminal activity longs for his society to exhibit the righteousness necessary to make the place flourish. 
But so often, when you try to change things, you get sucked into the system. You can see it in all the Batman movies. Batman tries to clean up the streets and fights against all the powerful interests that keep righteousness from flourishing. But the question is always, how does he make sure that he doesn't just become corrupt like all the naive people who tried to do it before him? Because it seems like he either does what's good and gets killed, or he gives in here and there to unrighteousness, and that totally corrupts him. We need a completely different kind of kingdom that brings justice without corrupting people. And that's the kind of kingdom that Jesus provides. Because it's hard to be corrupt when you're living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, which is based entirely off of self-sacrifice. But it's truly hard to live like that right here. In the meantime, we hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness to flourish and for humans to live in peace together. As D.A. Carson says, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, all unrighteousness grieves them and makes them homesick for the new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness. And that homesickness is a powerful thing. When I was in Illinois and homesick for Maryland, I did stuff that people from Maryland do. I put Old Bay on everything. I watched Maryland sports. I got obsessed with how cool the Maryland flag was. Geez, I even thought about watching lacrosse. But when you're homesick for the new heaven and the new earth, you do what people from the new heaven and the new earth do. The homesickness inspires you. You live like you're already in the new earth, even when you're really living on the old earth. Fifth, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. As you can probably gather from what I've said so far, the Jewish audience of Jesus did not want to hear this. Israel had suffer, suffered under foreign domination for five centuries. They had lost their national pride and were questioning whether God really was with them because of these empires that oppressed them. In 150 BC, the Greek king that Judah Maccabee fought against, Antiochus Epiphanes, threw out the high priest of Israel and installed his own priest in order to destroy the Jewish identity. The Jews threw out Antiochus' priest, priest and installed their own real priest. So Antiochus came to visit Jerusalem on the Sabbath when he knew the Jews' guard would be down. He marched his whole force into the city and pre pretended to make nice with them. Then Antiochus gave his army orders to slaughter every man in sight and sell off the women and children as slaves. This was the kind of thing that Jesus was calling the Jews to be merciful about. In fact, he was saying that the, way you know, that the way you know that someone is a part of the people of God is if they show mercy to people like Antiochus. How will the exile end? Not through violence like the Zealots, not through the pompous Torah obedience like the Pharisees, not through infiltrating the Gentile order like the Sadducees, and not through separating ourselves off entirely like the Essenes. None of that. No, the exile will end when we forgive and show mercy to the Gentiles and to everyone that wrongs us. So you can see why no Jew in their right mind would even entertain the idea. Be merciful to the Gentiles? Were they merciful to us? We did nothing to them, and they brought a pig into the temple, they forced us to worship Zeus, and they slaughtered our defenseless people on the Sabbath day while smiling at us and pretending to make nice with us. No, it's unthinkable. But once again, you read what Jesus says, and on its face it sounds obvious. And that's because it is. Who deserves to be shown mercy? The ones that are merciful. 
In fact, once again, this is something that the Jews, who all knew their Old Testament very well, should have already known. God saved Israel from slavery to be a light to the Gentiles. He wanted his creation order to spread through the whole world, and the way he would do it was by being with his one special people. Through Israel, the world was meant to be blessed, not cursed. And through the exile, the sins of the whole world were supposed to be forgiven, and everyone would be drawn in to worship God in Jerusalem. There's nothing in that Old Testament story about the Jews getting some payback for the way they were treated. Sorry, it's not there. How could it? If the world's going to be set right, it's not going to be through Israel taking all its pent-up resentment and spilling it all over a scared and dominated Gentile people. That's the way other kingdoms operate. Moreover, as Jesus points out, Israel needs a heaping cup of God's mercy too. Jesus is saying, don't forget why you're, in, why you're in this mess, Israel. You have sinned against God for millennia, and you still haven't repented. The only way that God will save you from exile is if he, he is merciful to you for your sins. But if you can't forgive others, why should you expect him to forgive you? Again, though, we do the same thing. We want God's gentle, forgiving, restoring love for us, but we want the world's dominant, violent, evil power for our enemies. It's so easy to forget our role in the world as people who bear witness to God's love and mercy when the world shows its evil and violent power to us. Jesus died for us when we were his enemies and while we were yet sinners, but we certainly would never sacrifice ourselves for our enemies while they still hate us but Jesus says that the kind of people that are going to be his, in his kingdom are the kind of people who show radical mercy, even in the face of the absolute worst crimes. The world goes tit for tat, taking an eye for an eye until the world goes blind. They take revenge for everything, ratcheting things up until disaster comes. If it's going to get any better, somebody's got to take the blows of the enemies and not give them back get slapped in the face and show them the other cheek. Somebody's got to change the situation by showing love and forgiveness and mercy. Jesus says that his people are those people, and it's a hard thing to do, but it's what God's people do. If you want to look like a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, you have to be merciful. It's really that simple. In these three Beatitudes, Jesus is saying that he will have a completely different kind of kingdom from all the others in the world. The Jews would very much like that kind of kingdom because they can throw everything that was done to them in the, in the faces of those that wronged them. But the world has tried the tit-for-tat method of justice for the last few millennia, and it really hasn't gotten us anywhere. So Jesus gives us a new way of being human. Being a citizen of God's kingdom means hungering and thirsting for righteousness recognizing that we need it just like we need water, but we do not have it. It also means hungering and thirsting for God's coming kingdom, where justice and righteousness reigns, and being homesick for that true world, which means living in a sense like it's already here. And if the kingdom is here, then that means that we need to be merciful to even the worst offenders, because God already has been merciful to us. Of course, the world cannot make heads or tails of that, but that's because they don't have the same vision and homesickness for the true world that we do. 
It also means we need to be gentle and meek, looking out for the good of others, and quietly showing the world what it means to be a subject of King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, give us the wisdom to see the way that your kingdom runs in this world. With sin all around us, it can be easy to be boisterous and vengeful rather than meek and merciful. But we hunger and we thirst because of the righteousness that we don't already have. And we pray that we will finally be satisfied by your coming one day to set everything right. In your name, amen.